Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of It Ain't Week to Speak. My name is Sam Webb and I'm here to share some of the most epic conversations I get to have with some of the most fascinating people on our planet. Every episode is dedicated to elevating the conversation around mental health because it ain't weak to speak. I'm a massive believer that a conversation could change and save a life for the better. Thank you for joining me on this journey. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. This is It Ain't Week to Speak, episode number 79, September. Are you kidding me? Time is flying. I'm your host, Sam Webb. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. If you've been with me for the last two or three years and you're here week in, week out, God, I'm excited and God, I'm grateful for your presence and your time. Thank you. Like always, please subscribe to this podcast because not only are you helping us climb the Apple podcast charts, but we're doing something greater than that, much greater than that, I should say. And that is helping this podcast get to people's ears around the world that you probably didn't expect. Because as I've always mentioned, a conversation like these that we have on this podcast definitely saves lives. So join me in subscribing to the podcast, share it with your friends, your family, take a couple of minutes out of your day and please like and leave a review or a comment and let me know where we could grow this bigger and better so that we can save more lives. Just a couple of updates for Living, as you might know, or if you don't know, the end of this month, we have Living Given Day. Now, The Given Day is all about raising money and awareness for mental health so that Livin and the team can continue to to do the great work that they do, help break down the stigma around mental health, save more lives, educate more young people, primarily in schools across the country. That is the main goal here. If we're going to see a societal change or a generational change, we must start young. And that's been our mantra since day one. So get behind it. Any dollar raised or, or donated to living makes a difference. So don't be discouraged. Everything, big or small, helps seriously, makes an impact so that we can get to more schools and educate more people to live their best life, but also to arm people with really basic mental health tools and strategies to live and to be able to cope through struggling and challenging times. So if you want to learn more about that, head to our website, living.org and you'll learn a lot more about the Living Given Day. It is our second year running this. Last year was our first year running it. We raised literally just over $300,000, which was unbelievable. You know, it goes to show the support in the communities all around Australia that help Living do the great work that it does. And without each and every single one of you, whether you're listening to the podcast or you're buying merch or you've booked a program or you've donated in your, in your local area, you guys are all part of part of living and the change that we're making it's not just the team obviously living is a is a people's charity and and you guys are all a part of the great work that we do so thank you now on to episode number 79 on the podcast now i'm very excited to bring this one to your ears wherever you are in the world you're gonna want to sit here put your seat belts on this is one you don't want to miss now if you have watched narcos on netflix or you know of Narcos on Netflix, I've managed to get the two real special agent DEA agents, Steve Murphy and Javier Pena, who targeted the world's first narco terrorist, Pablo Escobar, and they brought down the Medellin cartel onto the podcast. Now, I go into everything with these guys, how they ended up in Colombia, how they were managed and tasked with such a a monumental, I guess, case, given the work that they've done. They've spent over 30 years in law enforcement, spent over 25 years each plus as a DEA agent. 
which stands for the Drug Enforcement Administration in the US. Now, they were tasked with bringing down Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel. And if you've watched Narcos before, that's basically built around them from their point of view. And while they add a little bit of Hollywood and whatnot to, to Narcos on Netflix, this is the real story. You're going to hear it from the real mouths of two great gentlemen who are amazing humans that have done so much for humanity to make it a safer and a better place to live all over the world. But without you know going into too much depth right now and giving too much away, we talk about everything from you know capturing Pablo Escobar, the bounties that both of these gentlemen had on their heads at one stage when they were down in Medellin, to witnessing losing their fellow comrades in the line of duty from narco-terrorism and the narco-terrorists. The power and the control Pablo Escobar had on the entire country of Colombia. He supplied the world, 80% of the world's cocaine supply. And he was arguably one of the most wealthiest and most wanted humans in the world. And these guys were, were tasked with either bringing him to justice or to kill him. So we've got a, we've got so much to cover in this episode. The guys cover everything. There's even intel that they share on here that I haven't shared ever before. So definitely, you don't want to miss this episode. It's mind-boggling, the stories that we share on here. And I'm so excited that these guys gave me their time to talk. They didn't just give me their time. They were very excited to give me their time. And yeah, I could, I could have spent hours with them. But without further ado... Uh, let's bring them onto the podcast and let, let's make them feel real welcome. Let's welcome Steve Murphy and Javier Pena. Well, welcome onto the podcast today. I actually cannot believe I'm sitting here in front of Steve Murphy, Javier Pena. Mate, it's an absolute honor to have you guys on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Sam. We appreciate you having us on the show. Likewise. It's- Happy to be here. Yeah, it's, I mean, I've been a massive, massive, you know, film and TV is obviously something I'm very passionate in, I work in, but obviously going back to watching the seasons of Narcos and having a genuine interest in, you know, what actually happened down there in, in Colombia back in the 90s and 80s and everything else with the cartels and everything else, I was like, how can I get a hold of these guys and get them onto the podcast? And <laughs> Steve, I think it was you that I connected with on Instagram and you wrote back and I was like, man, I'm so stoked to even get you guys to be open to come on. We appreciate it. You may not say that after you talk to us. Yeah, well, <laughs> we'll soon find out. Just so obviously a lot of our listeners probably, you know, most of them will probably have heard of Narcos, the hit TV show on Netflix and all that sort of stuff. But let's rewind. Let's go back even prior to that to both your guys' days, you know, in law enforcement in the United States of America. How did that all come about? Steve, you want to start first? Yeah. You know, for me, I wanted to be a cop since I was a little kid. My parents didn't, <laughs> they, weren't, <laughs> they weren't in favor of that. My dad's a retired minister and he and my uncle owned a flooring store and I was the only son of both businesses. So it was always anticipated that I would take over the family business. And I started that at 14. It sucked then. It sucks now. I never wanted to take over that business. (laughs) So, you know, I went away to college, was way too immature to be away from home. My dad saw my grades at my first university and he's like, yeah, I'm not paying for that. So come on home. You can go to the local state college. And I did and got into the criminal justice program. Just really enjoyed it. Had a blast doing that in college. Took the police test, the civil service test when I was 18 years old. Got hired one month after turning 19, believe it or not. And I was a cop for the next 38 years. Wow. Wow, so there's no turning back nope. from that moment onwards, man. You were embedded into the system as best as they come. Wouldn't change it. I'll tell you, well, there's a couple of little incidents here and there that I'd like to change, but I wouldn't change my career path at all. Oh, mate, that's beautiful, man. And that's so great to hear. And obviously, there's been so much happened since, obviously, you getting into the criminal justice system and working your way up and whatnot up until today. Mm-hmm. Javier, you talk to me about your entry into the police system, so to speak, in the US. Where did that all start for you, mate? Right. It all started, well, I graduated high school in 1974, and I'm from South Texas. It's a little town, population 5,000 called Hebronville, Texas, which is about an hour east of Laredo, Texas, which is the border. So anyway, just went to college and an internship came up and I was going to Texas A&I at Kingsville and did an internship at the prison system. 
for credit, you know, got paid. So after that, you know, they were hiring in Laredo with the sheriff's office, 1977. You know, they called me, says, hey, Javier, we got some openings. I knew a guy there. So I came on and I started off at the jail and worked like a lot of, you know, cops getting their degrees. I worked uh, during nighttime, went to school during the day, got my degree, and I just saw both on board. Back then, you know, the jobs would be posted on the bulletin board. So I saw where DEA was hiring. And with me, it was just, wow, they were, they were paying like 17000 a year. I was making like 10000 at the sheriff's office. So I applied, not even knowing what DEA was. So I came on and my deal was I was only going to do like two years, then go back to the sheriff's office. So those two years at DEA turned into 30. So I think uh, I liked yeah. at, at DEA. So and with me, it was all a mistake. I didn't even know. I told people I didn't even know what DEA stood for. You know? <laughs> she just <landed laughs> they just paid more money and it was a fed. So I said, hey, you know what? Let me get out. of. I needed to get out of Laredo for a while. Wow. Wow, mate. That's awesome. So talk to me like for people that don't know, obviously, I know that what the DEA stands for, Drug Enforcement Administration. But what does that actually mean, all right? So talk to me through it. So in America, and I know Australia might be a little bit different, you've got, you know, your general police officer who drives around in a police car and they book people or they attend accidents and maybe they go to homicides here and there or maybe they go to suicides or whatever it is. What's the difference with being in the DEA? Like what does that actually mean here in the US? What's your primary duty and how does that look? Well, DEA is a single mission agency, meaning that they have one responsibility, and that's to investigate narcotics at the federal level. So not only do we have federal agencies, but we also have state agencies, county agencies, city agencies, tribal agencies. So that's kind of the breakdown here in the U.S. But DEA, in addition, it tries to attack the drug problem at its source. So, for example, Javier and I were in Colombia, and Colombia back then was the leading country for the production of cocaine, and unfortunately still is today. It waffles back and forth between first, second, and third with Bolivia and Peru. But, you know, and you can also investigate peripheral offenses such as money laundering associated with drug trafficking, weapons charges associated with drug trafficking, that kind of thing. But our job is just to go after the drug traffickers. And we're not talking about the street-level weed smokers. That's never been DEA's mission you know, it's to, you're supposed to go after the cartel heads. So the biggest of the big around the world, whether it's, you know, Russia, China, Asia, Colombia, Mexico, I mean, all around the world. So that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we attack the biggest and baddest, like she said, the biggest, baddest drug trafficking organizations. And we investigate. We'll take it from, you know, our, our mission is to wipe out, you know, words, dismantle the whole drug trafficking organization from the guy who's bringing it in from another country to the guy who's making the money to the guy who's illegally money laundering, laundering the money. So our job is you go after everybody in that organization. And that's what we've always done. And the big myth, and I think we alluded to it is, yeah, we're not after the guy out there, the street quarter who's, you know, smoking, you know, or who's popping pill. You know, we're not after that. We're after, like you said, the source people from, and we'd like to take it from the country all the way, for example, you know, Pablo Escobar, you know, from Colombia all the way to the United States, to Europe, all of this trafficking organization. So, Wow, man. And it's such a big worldwide problem. And as you both definitely know, more than I would know, this is a problem that is probably going to be around forever, you know, and fighting it. From being in the DEA and as special agents for over 30 years, Is it frustrating to see when you take, like, and we'll talk about the whole taking down Pablo Escobar and that mission in Medellin and Colombia, but is it frustrating to see that when one gets taken down, look, we've seen a lot of other cartel heads take over and they're now the biggest drug kingpins in the world and more drugs now than ever are coming through to the US and Europe and Australia. Like, how do you deal with that from a psychological point of view and as a passionate officer point of view? Like, what do you do? Amongst ourselves, we used to joke around, we've got the best job security in the world. (laughs) (laughs) We took down the Medellin cartel and Cali stepped right up and then took Cali down and the North Valley cartel stepped up. And then a guy named Don Berna stepped up and 
what that is, it's just a testament to how many evil people there are in the world just waiting to take advantage of, you know, what we call sheep, you know, law-abiding citizens, that people just trying to go about their lives, make a living, take care of their families, you know, take a little vacation now and then, just enjoy life. And you got all these drug traffickers out there that are violent. You know, they will employ levels of violence that most people in the world have never seen, especially here in the United States, because we're pretty spoiled here. And if you don't believe that, go live in a foreign country for a while and, and see what you think then. <laughs> yeah. So it's on top of everything else here in the U.S., it seems like we're becoming more and more permissive that people are allowed to do just whatever they want to do. And that should be fine. And, you know, I mean, I'm a big proponent of individual rights as well, but not when it's you're expecting me to take care of your sorry ass because you're now a drug addict or you can't, you know, support yourself or your families and things like that. I have a little bit of a problem with that. That's mm, yeah, very powerful stuff. And, and remember, it's frustrating also because, you know, that drug trafficker doesn't care, you know, who dies, who gets killed. As long as he's making money, that's the aim of a drug trafficker mm -hmm. is to sell his dope wherever, Australia, United States, Europe. And he don't care how many people get killed in the process, as long as there's money to be made. And, you know, and we get that question a lot about, you know, the, the trafficking organizations. You take one down, like Steve mentioned, another one is born, you know. And we saw the example, Cali Cartel was sitting back while we were doing Medellin Cartel. Once we did Pablo, all the Medellin Cartel, Cali took over. They were stronger. They learned from Pablo Escobar what not to do. Cali was, it's a good study in history because we call Pablo the wild, wild west where the Cali cartel was more business oriented. In fact, they sent people to the United States to get educated. They were very sophisticated in their technical capabilities. But, you know, and then all of a sudden you take them down and then now look at Mexico. You know, we see the trafficking organizations. We know about El Chapo, who's in prison now. But there's a lot of other ones. And like I said, as long as there's money to be made, the drug trafficker is going to be happy. People get killed. That's a way of business for them. Or they'll kill off competition. That's a way of business for them. They don't care. Look at the drugs right now. You know, I mean, we all know about fentanyl. I mean, that's killing a lot of people. And it's being made illegally. And it's being brought into the United States. And, you know, every day people are getting killed, you know. And, you know, and let me just say that we do a lot of talks, Steve and I, and, you know, people listening out there, be careful with those pills. You know, there's hundreds of examples of family members who have told us my son never did anything. And we believe him. He just had a pill. He couldn't sleep at night. So a buddy of his gave him a, what was the, that pill? It was a Xanax. Xanax. It was loaded with fentanyl. You know, and that fentanyl is just one little grain of salt. And, you know, that young person died, did not wake up in the morning. That example, you multiply that by a thousand. And that's what we're seeing right now. So don't take anything from the podcast. Be careful with those pills out there. You don't know they're counterfeit. So anyway, that was my two cents. Nah, it's a very important topic to raise because you're right. People, you just don't know what's in these things these days, do you? You really don't. And you guys have seen it from the absolute, you know, bottom all the way to the very top. And it probably, you know, transitions me on to my next point, right? You guys are in the DEA. Do you guys work alongside other federal agencies? Like when you got missioned, right, to go down to Columbia, was that just a, how did that come about? How did it even start? Obviously, you're in a DEA and a field office. Is that right? How did this happen? How did you get down to Columbia? How did it work? JP, why don't you go? Yeah, and I got there in 1988. Before that, I was, I was born. I was born. I was born in 1988. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Covered. <laughs> yeah, I came on the DEA in 1984, and I was in Austin, Texas. And before you go foreign, they just do not just send you. You have to put in for a job, and you have to have four oh, wow. years, you know, with street experience. You know, in four years, you know, Steve and I, you know, you do a lot of surveillances. You do the grunt work, the 24-hour surveillances, you know, all that sort of You learn the streets. So after the four years I put in, and I put in for Mexico, they made a mistake, and I got sent to Colombia. <laughs> so it was a wow. volunteer type of job assignment. So basically, and then when I get to Colombia, 
I was assigned to Pablo Escobar's investigation. I did not know who Pablo Escobar was. I had heard of him, of course. But, you know, they were just saying, hey, Peña, the senior agent was transitioning out of Colombia. So she was there first, and she started giving me all the files. Then I started slowly, you know, learning, knowing the, the police, the cops. We had a special unit that was going after Pablo Escobar. So, so I slowly transitioned into that. So I did not ask for the case. I was assigned it. The main thing is I didn't even ask to go to Colombia. It was a mistake. I wanted to go to Mexico, and I got selected for Colombia. So it's a voluntary basis. And like I said, they assigned me that case and then we worked it. And then, you know, I'll let Steve, you know, about his part. But it's basically, like I said, it was a voluntary assignment, you know, and I was assigned to Pablo Escobar case. And Steve, please add on to that. Like, was there 50 of you assigned to that and like volunteered for that? Or was it a small group of people in plainclothes offices? No one down there was to know that you were to arrive in Colombia? Like... How secret is this and how top level is this that we're talking? Well, when you go overseas, you don't know what case you're going to be assigned to. So, you know, I came into a great situation because Javier had already been there for three years and he'd already earned the respect and trust of this elite group of Columbia National Police Officers. And his partner at the time, Gary Sheridan, who's still a good friend of ours, is he got promoted and was moved out of Bogota to Barranquilla. So that's when I stepped in and Javier and I started really becoming partners at that point. When we were going after Pablo Escobar, I think we had 23 agents in the DEA office in Bogota at the time. And that included our bosses, you know, all levels of the big boss, the second, the third level bosses, and then us grunts. Plus we had an Intel unit and we had an ATF agent, a customs agent, an IRS agent. But when it came to investigating Escobar, it was Javier and I. So when, like when he escaped from his prison, you know, the Colombians created their search block, the Bloque de Buscada, and they asked for us to come up and start living in Medellin with them, which is what we did for 18 months. So the day after Pablo escaped from his custom-built prison, Javier and I were on the flight up there and, you know, spent the next 18 months with the Colombian National Police. You know, and you'd think that, I mean, you're going after the world's first narco-terrorist, the world's most wanted criminal, a guy who's responsible for 80% of the world's cocaine, and they sent two DEA guys. <laughs> All right. Huh? I mean, That's we had a, a lot of support from the, everybody in the embassy that was there to support us and DEA headquarters and DEA offices around the world were just, you know, that was the top priority for DEA around the world at that time was the Escobar organization. Wow. And is that just because of the sheer volume of drugs? That and the violence. Power? The violence was, I mean, unheard of. It was. You've never seen violence like that before in your whole entire life? Well, like in our shows, Javier points out that in American law enforcement, we had never seen car bombs on the streets like that. You know, and here you got, there was one night we were in Medellin. We'd been on operations all day. That evening, you know, you're out in the field behind the base there having a cold drink. And we heard 17 bombs go off that night. It was unbelievable. I mean, it's the carnage, the unfortunate people who just simply happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when one of his car bombs went off. I mean, the innocent people that were being murdered. We'd never seen, I'm sure there's places around the world like that, but I'd never seen it. And I don't think JP had either. It's just, it was mind blowing. What did this have on your, feel free either of you to answer this first, but what kind of impact did this have on you mentally being down there away from your families and stuff like right. yeah. potentially having bounties on your head, no doubt. Yeah. Mentally. So that's a great question. I mean, obviously we were on base with the Columbia National Police. They protected us. You know, we worked together. But, you know, I saw a couple of my friends get killed. One of them was the first, well, you know, Captain Rojas. We sent him out on a mission. He got killed. His sergeant got killed. And that's when we, and you know, it was our responsibility. We were the ones who sent him, you know, gave him some money. Hey, we were investigating this organization. Because when you're in a foreign country, we're there as guests. We're not, you know, we're not undercover. We're not, you know, we have zero authority, right? So we help out with the basically intelligence. But anyway, you know, so I saw one of our guys that we personally sent out get killed. I mean, and I remember... I mean, how do you, you know, it was just one of the, I never experienced that. So we talked to the family, we were able to get some funds from the U.S. for the family. But then also during the search for Pablo Escobar, a couple of our guys at the search block, you know, were killed by Pablo Escobar. You know what? 
I always, it's that stress, but knowing that, you know, I mean, they're friends of yours. And there were a lot of times where, you know, Steve and I would just say, you know what, guys, let's just go home, let Pablo Escobar surrender again, let him go to his custom-made prison. We all go home. Nobody gets hurt. However, we never, you know, I'm glad we, you know, what we always overcame that. And it's just, you know, I mean, I can't overstress that that stress. It gets to you. And real quick, you know, I just want to mention my second time in Colombia. I went back, I left in 1994 and I went back in 1999. And this time we were going after the Cali cartel, but the stress got to me so bad that I'd wake up at night choking. It was just like, wow. You know, they sent me to the United States and obviously they said, hey, had a lot of stuff going on. But And it was because they came after me personally in the press. You know, can you imagine? I was accused of being a member of Los Pepes and then accusations that I took a lot of bright money. As a matter of fact, I don't think I've ever mentioned it, so this will be the first time I'm going to mention it, but my own agency did a surveillance on me. I found out later because there was a call to the people in headquarters that I was going to receive some money for a payoff for letting loads go. Like I told people, you think I have the authority in Colombia to let a load go? So you can imagine later on, I found out my own agency did a surveillance on me because they thought I was going to pick up some money. It was just that, oh yeah, it got to the point. And even the ambassador one Sunday morning calls me. And, and luckily, she was an experienced ambassador, had been around the world, understood the problems. And she just, she called me and says, oh yeah, you may want to go buy the local paper. Your face is on the front headline, basically where the accusation that I was accepting, that I was part of killing innocent people with those papers. So, you know, and so it was just, you know, the two years, I was there two years and I just told my agency, you know what, I can't do it. My stress, I'm not sleeping. I developed sleep apnea. I developed all sorts of, you know, blood pressure, heart conditions. So I had to come back to the United States. And that's what I tell people. And I'll be honest, it was to the point where I thought I was going to get indicted in the United States because of all this. And all those accusations, that's all they were. BS accusations, traffickers have money. And my second time, I was coming out a lot in the press in Colombia, you know, so they knew me, all the seizures, hey, DEA, Javier Pena, a friend of ours with Colombian National Police, and I'd always go. So it got to the point where just all the accusations, and I said, I, I couldn't take it. I said, you know what, two years, and I want to stay there the whole six years, but I said, no, I got to go back. So Get it back. does yeah, take wow. a toll on you and it does affect people and you have to deal with it. If not, you know, there's going to be consequences. Mate, thanks very much for sharing that with us on the podcast. Very, very grateful to hear it from you, JP. Very grateful, man. What about you, Steve? What about you, mate? What was it like mentally down there for you? Like how bad did it really get? Like you watch these TV shows, right? Most people listening right now have watched Narcos. I've watched all of them, Narcos, Narcos Mexico, Surviving Pablo Escobar, based on JJ's life and all that sort of stuff. How bad did it get? And are those shows well aligned with what actually happened or are they very far off the mark? Depends on who they're focusing on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) From your own point of views, from your own point of views on your own lives, and then we can talk about everyone else. Okay. So, well, Narcos is, there's an awful lot of Hollywood in there and that's, it's right in our contracts that they can employ literary licensing as they see fit. And we have no of recourse. Course. We're very happy with the series. So we're not complaining yeah. about it at all. And you guys were the producers or subject matter experts. What, what was your role on it? Yeah, we were paid consultants. We were like the, paid just for the first two seasons, which is the two seasons about Pablo, which is the same thing as a subject matter expert. And, you know, at that time, we didn't have agents like we do now. So we probably could have got a better contract. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The stress for me was, it is palpable. I mean, how many to tell you, we had a major that we worked with who, him and we went to the funerals, eight police officers that we worked with in the funeral home at one time that were killed during the Escobar investigation. Javier, you ran into the majors. Was it right. her daughter? His daughter? Yeah, just real quick. Yeah. And they got killed. They had Pablo Escobar located and basically 
there was some shots were fired. They were on the river going there, boats overturned. So eight of our guys and his daughter, you know what, about a year ago, called me up. And she's a police officer now. And she wanted to know about her dad. She was a baby. She, you know, it's just her story. So I told her a lot about her dad. I knew him very well. So, and like you always said, there's always a personal touch to all of this. You know, when you talk about Pablo Escobar, like I said, because we knew people who got killed during the search for Pablo Escobar. So there's always a human side to all of this. You know, in the end, you know what? We won. Pablo Escobar lost. But, you know, if you look at all the innocent people that were killed. And Steve and I, we did our own analysis and we came up to what, 10 to 15,000, right? Innocent people got killed. Yeah, yeah, our analysis. No kidding. Yeah, 10 to 15. And this is, and you know what makes it a little bit, I guess, more clear or more definite is that his Sicario, and there's people out there that know about Pablo's world. They know his main Sicario guy by the name of Popeye. Popeye was the only Sicario, Sicario's an assassin, right? Worked for Pablo Escobar. And he's the only guy who was put in prison. I think he did 25 years. So he came out about five years ago and he was all over the press. Had his own show, had his own, Mm, was was doing all sorts of things. Popeye is his nickname, John Heidel Velasquez Vasquez. So, but he, in his publication, in public, he said it was closer to 50,000 people that Pablo Escobar killed. 50,000 people coming from his own Sicario. And Steve and I, I mean, we did our, like I said, because of the car bombs, and we took in effect, you know, like I said, all the bombings that we talked about earlier, Why? the 10 to 15 Why? on a daily yeah. basis. But So that's a lot of innocent people mm-hmm. that were killed by Pablo Escobar. So, and, you know, and we'll get to it hopefully here in a little bit, but, you know, there's people that think that Pablo Escobar was a Robin Hood. You know what, we, Steve and I, we do our shows all over the world and we just fill that myth. Like I said, Pablo Escobar didn't blow up a commercial airline, you know, with 107 innocent people. Didn't blow up buildings, kill the next president of Colombia. The, uh, he killed the attorney general. So Pablo Escobar was no Robin Hood. And you mentioned bounties. Pablo put a bounty on Colombian national police officers of $100 a person. The fact that a, a human being's life is worth a hundred bucks, right? A hundred bucks. It was ridiculous. There was over a thousand police officers killed investigating one organization. Extremely important. Remember that over a thousand police officers killed men and women who are brave enough to put a uniform on to try to protect others. And their life was worth a hundred bucks. And he put. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The bounty on us as well, $300,000 each. On both of you. On each of us. Well, actually on every DEA agent in Colombia. <laughs> and how did that work? How did you find out about that? Oh, I think somebody just told me about it when I got to the embassy just to see what my reaction would be, but it was true. <laughs> oh, my God. How does that make you deal with being down there and working? Did that change the way you work? Like, obviously, you both have families. Like, what was that like, living with them while you're on duty? Well, you know, for me, my wife was there with me. I had two children at the time, and they had to stay in the United States and from a previous marriage, so they stayed with their mom. Initially, it's a little disconcerting when you hear that, and you think everybody's kidding, and you're like, no shit, really? <laughs> and then, so honestly, it's like anything else. If you have an occupation which is dangerous, it doesn't have to be law enforcement, it could be military, you know, I mean, electricians out here running the big lines, anybody that has a, a very dangerous occupation, you become hyper vigilant, but you also, I don't want to say complacent, but you get used to it and you don't dwell on it. If you dwell on it, it'll mess you up, up here in your head. So you just, we never talked about it too much. If other people brought it up, we'd confirm it. And, you know, you just went on. But you got to remember, we were a whole lot younger back then. And it was exciting. And, you know, we knew, you know, Javier and I, as well as Gary and anybody else working on the case, we knew that was going to be the biggest drug cases of our careers, the biggest investigations. You know, so it was a very exciting time. So talk to me through. So you're down there in Columbia. You're working on the biggest case, you know, ever. What is real and what isn't real? For someone like me who's... Let's say I've never spoken to you guys up until now, obviously, and I've watched the shows. And yet, because I've been to Columbia many times. Mm -hmm. I've got friends that have been in there. My fiance was just recording a music video down there not so long ago. And I get a sense of just being in El Poblado, Medellin, that it seems a little bit corrupt. There is no doubt people being paid in some level, way, shape, or form, whether it's the police and all that sort of stuff. If Pablo Escobar had the police on his side and you watch things like Narcos and he was paying people off and all that. Is that true? Like, how true is that? Yeah, it is true. I mean, Pablo Escobar had the money of the world, right? I mean, he was responsible for 80% of the cocaine that was reaching the world. So he was bringing back millions and billions with a B of dollars. So he had the money of the world. And we learned the hard way. For example, at the very beginning of the search, we had a lot of corruption. And it was police officers we were working with that were from Medellin. So Pablo Escobar being Pablo Escobar got to their families basically and said, Hey, if your kid doesn't call and tell me when, if they're coming for me or where they're going to come after me, I will kill your kid. Then I'll kill you, the family. So we learned because we had corruption that way. And we had some higher up people also at the beginning that we didn't trust. And you know what? And I remember you know, one of my informants was later on killed and the operation was ruined. We brought in a police officer that we did not know, and he's the guy who leaked the information. So later on, we brought in only people that were not from Medellin. And what happened is, what worked is that Steve and I had worked with people in Bogota. In the search block, we've alluded to that, Bloque de Búsqueda, their only mission was to go after Pablo Escobar. It was not to seize money, not to seize dope. So we had a great leader. The name is Colonel Hugo Martinez, later on became a general. And he was just very adamant about going for Pablo Escobar. And the search for Pablo took a personal turn. What I mean by personal turn is that Pablo was targeting, like we said, the police officers offering bounties. And Pablo you know, would write letters to Colonel Martinez saying, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to kill your wife and your kids. And he was, you know, so the, the police, how can I say it? Basically, it was a personal factor. It was revenge going after Pablo Escobar. So these guys could not be bought. They didn't care. You know, if they were offered money, they didn't care. You know, so and that's what made it work. And you know what, and you are, I mean, we saw politicians take money, of course. We saw judges take money, but you know. What do you do in those situations though? Like what would you guys do if you happily knew that that was going on? Well, and let me tell you, yeah, let me give you an example. One of the first judges when this concept, the Plato or Plomo came up, you want a bullet or you want some money, right? 
Plata or Plomo. That was his big phrase and his famous phrase in Colombia. It's a famous phrase now in Mexico. But basically, you know, a couple of sicarios walk into a judge's office and say, Mr. Judge, we're being sent by Mr. Pablo Escobar. Judge, we got $100,000. All you have to do, sir, very polite, is drop the case on Mr. Escobar. And here's the money. <laughs> the judge kicked them out. So guess what happened the next day? They killed the judge, his wife, and his kids. So we took from there on. So what do you do? I mean, and I don't blame people now for taking those briefcases. I mean, you're going to get, your family's going to get killed. So that was Pablo Escobar's message of, you know, you want the money or you want a bullet? How do you combat that attitude? So that's why, and I think the concept of the search block was a great concept, and we didn't create it. <laughs> it was the, the Colombian National Police who came up with this idea, and it was just guys who hated Pablo Escobar, and like I said, they were not familiar. Everybody had different names, so that concept is what really, you know, got Pablo Escobar killed later on. Wow. How close were you guys to obviously getting to the tail end of the investigation down there in, in Medellin? And obviously, I know that he had his own jail on the top of the hill. And I did one of those tours there years ago. And he basically ran the whole thing, obviously. And he set it up apparently to, and you guys obviously know better than I do, but he set it up so that he could see the airstrip based in Medellin with all of his drugs still coming in. Is that correct? I never heard that or one. Is it JP? No. Is it a story I've heard from maybe the tourist thing? Anyway, I looked at like how far through the investigation did you know that it was definitely coming to an end and you knew that, you know, these were either the final days or, you know, you felt like you were making some good ground and some good movement. Well, so he was killed on December 2nd, 1993. Go back about six to eight weeks prior to that. And then a couple months prior to that, it just it kind of died off. We weren't getting any information from anyone. We had an 800 tip line set up. There was no credible information coming in there. You know, if you watch the show Narcos, it shows that he was out visiting his dad on his farm. And, you know, I mean, that's Hollywood. If we'd known he was out there, we'd have gone and got him, right? Mm, yeah, of course. <laughs> so, and that's when Javier was thinking, you know, when he mentioned that we were kind of of the mind, just let the guy surrender, you know, just get him back in custody and get back to our lives. But then we'd see some of our Columbia police officer friends murdered, you know, and that helps you reestablish your focus. And so those couple of months before he died is when we started getting more information in. Los Pepes was very active during the time. You know, what they did, I mean, we don't support Los Pepes. They're murderous vigilantes, which we do not condone at all in law enforcement. But the truth is they had a lot to do with bringing him down. And basically what they did is they used Pablo's tactics, tactics against him. You know, anybody associated with him or his family or the organization, they went and murdered him. What's well, still murder? You know, so that's why we're not in favor of that. But the truth is they did have a lot to do with bringing him down. So when you say Los Pepes, just for people who are listening, what are they? Are they a gang? Are they a group of people? Who are they? JP? Okay. Los Pepes were the little translation is people persecuted by Pablo Escobar. Real quick. When Pablo Escobar escaped, he killed two of his friends, Moncada Gallano, real-life guys. And this were Pablo Escobar's drug traffickers' friends. When Escobar was in prison, these guys were sending all the dope for him. Their head of security is a guy by the name of Don Bernard, who did not go to that meeting when Pablo Escobar killed those two guys. So Pablo's orders were to wipe out Moncada family and the Galliano family and anybody who worked for him. So they were starting to get targeted by Pablo Sicario. So they formed the Don Berna, got all the guys who worked for Galliano and Moncada family, and there were hundreds. They said, guys, we're going to form a group. And they came up with the name of Pepes because they wanted Pablo Escobar to know it was them. So they started killing anybody associated with Pablo Escobar. Innocent, you know, attorneys, friends. They were trying to kill his mom, his wife, and his kids. And then they would put the placard, Los Pepes. And that was getting publicized in Colombia. So Pablo knew it was Don Berna who was killing his people. And they were playing dirty. They didn't care. They, you know, there's one attorney and he had his two sons with him. They killed his two sons, you know, 10 years old. They put the placard on that. So Pablo was, towards the end, was trying to get the family out of Colombia. So I mean, and we were winning towards the end. You know, Pablo was still trying to get organized, but Los Pepes had a lot to do with it in the search block also. And let me just also, when you mentioned 
the prison. It was it wasn't a prison, so I want people to know that it was a country club setting. You know, Steve, you would have had, you know, Steve does a he good job. Night, he had a nightclub and everything up there. Yeah, he did. There was evidence of lots of partying. I mean, orgy style partying. Yeah. You know, they found some coke, they found some weed, they found some money and some documents when we got in the prison there. Just they were holding their own soccer tournaments in the prison and went awarding trophies, believe it or not. I mean, it's just a joke. They're building these cabanas and chalets on the hillside just outside the back fence of the prison. And when you got to the backside of the prison, there wasn't a gate. There's just a big gaping hole in the chain link fence so you could come and go as you please. I mean, this guy. He was going down. If he wanted to go spend the night with his wife and children, he did. If he wanted to go to a soccer game, a restaurant, a club, whatever he wanted to do. It's the proverbial revolving door on the front of that prison. He came and went as he pleased. It's crazy, hey? Because yeah, I remember being up there and they said there was like a discotheque. We're talking about La Cathedral or whatever. Yeah, La Catedral. Yeah, they called it yeah, the Cathedral yeah. La Catedral. And I think that view you were talking about, he had a view of Medellin, the city of Medellin. It was a yeah, beautiful was, yeah. view. Yeah, that's what you're talking about. The rumor is he had a big telescope there, yeah, and that yeah. was that he could watch his wife and his kids, you know, from his <laughs> little apartment. Yeah, but it's one of the most prettiest views. And if you've been to Medellin, you know what we're talking about. It's a beautiful city, the mountains, you know, it's just to me one of the prettiest cities in the world. So, but that was, he had a great view. And also what Steve mentioned about those chalets, after he left, Pablo was going to turn it into a high tourist business. And you know what? There's going to be people that he would have made more money legit from the tourist business because everybody would want to stay where he stayed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, when I went up there, they were showing like, because it was kind of like half broken down or or damaged. When did you go up there? I went up there in 2018. Okay. 17. 2017, maybe. And they were showing like the walls. He created these fake false back walls so you could walk in them if someone was there. Like if he was getting chased or whatever. He had, yeah, well, I don't know what you call them, but you could hide in them behind the doors. And like there was a helipad yeah. was down at the front. And even in the helipad, there was like, it would have been like a two foot gap where you could hide inside the helipad. And like he'd strategically, anyway, that was what we were told when we were up there. Right, right. Well, and I went also, and you know what? I was a little disappointed because they started turning into a monastery. I don't know if you saw that. They were turning into, you know, a monastery and stuff. You know what? And I went later on. You're, well, I'm not sure, but anyway, yeah. But like I said, that cathedral was no prison. It was a country club setting. There were no bars. He he did have a drinking bar, you know, but the stories that came out of it, when we went in and we were there the next day after he escaped, Steve and I. Wow. Huh? To the cathedral. Yeah, we were there. Yeah, you were there oh, the next day. After he escaped. We weren't there during the firefight, but we were there after the, the, the first day. And yeah, there was a lot. Of, there was no bars. It was a country club setting. He had his own apartment inside, his own jacuzzi, you know, a drinking bar, pictures of people coming in and partying with him. So it was no no prison. It was a country club. Wow. That, That's that why they called absolute... it the cathedral. Yeah. Yeah, wow, that is crazy. And so talking about down to the tail end of the investigation, how close were you guys to, and I've got a question I want to ask after okay. this, how close were you there until he got shot and murdered on the rooftop? All right. And all this, Steve, let me just, because my part is I was not there. It's a little different in the narco series. In real life, the ambassador ordered me to go to Miami because there was an informant who called the ambassador. I don't know how that happened, but then the informant, I already knew him and he only wanted to tell me where Pablo Escobar was. So the ambassador ordered me to go to Miami. I tried to argue with the ambassador saying, sir, we're on him. We're very close. And he didn't believe me. The ambassador sent me to Miami. And the person, the irony, who tells me Pablo Escobar just got killed as the informant. When I see him, he's on the phone and one of his buddies from Colombia, because, you know, it was big news. So anyway, but Steve, Steve, he was there. So I'll let Steve do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it shows in the narco series that I was on the roof. That's not true. I was back at the base. So, you know, it was a Colombian national police officer. It was actually a lieutenant named Hugo Martinez using radio directional finding equipment. He's the man that found Pablo that day that he was killed. The ironic thing about that is Lieutenant Hugo Martinez's father is Colonel Hugo Martinez, who was the head of the search block. So on the day that Pablo was killed, you've got 
Colonel Martinez talking to his son and Lieutenant Martinez. And over here, you got Pablo talking to his son, Juan Pablo. So you got the good guy and the bad guy, the father, you know, bad guy, father, son teams going against each other. And we kind of make a joke that, you know, sounds like a plot for a show called Narcos, right? (laughs) (laughs) But we felt like we were getting close. It was, we were really upset about the fact that the ambassador made Javier go to Miami. And what he didn't tell you is Javier went right back to the airport, got on the next flight back to Bogota. Well, it was full of reporters and news media personnel. Can you imagine what would happen if they'd known who he was? (laughs) He wouldn't have gotten any rest on that flight. Nah, no way. But, you know, people say they've seen the pictures and, you know, they, people always ask, well, how did you feel about it? And I felt like the weight of the world was lifted off our shoulders because my wife's been back in Bogota by herself for 18 months. You know, we adopted our first daughter in October of 93. So two months before Pablo was killed and I'm not getting to see her, except I might get to go home on a weekend and visit them. And Javier was very gracious for me when Christmas 92 rolled around. He let Connie and I have the time off, you know, so we could go back and visit our families in the United States. And I think we on that one, I think we were only gone a week on that trip, but the Christmas after Pablo was killed, we were gone for two weeks. And then people say, well, what'd you do next? You know, did you get promoted? Did you do this? No, we had loose ends to tie up. And then this is the honest truth, babe. <laughs> you just move on to your next case. That case is over. He's dead. The organization is decimated. It's completely dismantled. You know, it was Popeye and maybe just a couple other guys that still survived and they were in prison. So we just moved on to the next case. It wasn't like you got, we didn't even get any real big awards or anything, not from the government anyway, not from the U.S. government. What about, so you know how Pablo Escobar, because there was a lot of talk, people thought that Pablo Escobar died and got shot on that roof by U.S. people. He was shot by Colombian nationals, wasn't he? Without question. Okay. So I wanted to clear that up. That's a question that I definitely have. A lot of people like to say that, you know, we had the U.S. Navy SEAL Team 6 and U.S. Army's Delta Force members with us for 18 months in Medellin. There's this myth out there that one of them, that one of these special operators was a sniper and, and shot him, you know, from a long distance shot. And you know what? In our mind, that could have happened, but it didn't because, and people say, well, how do you know that? Well, because when the operation was going down, I was standing in the room with all the U.S. operators. I know where they were. We'd been with them for 18 months. We knew who they were. They were our friends now. And the head of Delta Force back then was a, he's a retired general now, Jerry Boykin, who's I've stayed in touch with over the years. And we've got to be friends. And he'll be the first to tell you they did not kill Pablo Escobar. And he'll tell you the Colombian National Police killed Pablo. And that's the truth. Yeah. Well, mate, I appreciate it. And I'm grateful to get clarification on that for sure, because it's something that I wanted to know. Mm -hmm. And then as far as like, you know, they talk about these days, like, oh, Pablo had so much money. He had billions of dollars. Like, where was it all? Like, has anyone ever found it? Like, <laughs> Everybody wants I'm sure to know you that. get questioned this all the time. And they're saying, like, you hear it all the time where they're still finding money. Or is that all just a lie? Like, is that true? Is it people still searching for money in Colombia? You know what? That is very true. That is very true. And I'm being really? honest. There's still a lot of money wow. buried in Caletas, hiding places that belong to Pablo Escobar. The problem is nobody knows where they're at because the guy who buried the money was killed. And Pablo Escobar now is dead. So, and there's been a lot of talk. There's been documentaries done. In fact, Steve and I went back there filming a documentary. They didn't find anything. And you know what? There's still money there. And the only way it's going to be uncovered is going to be by an accident, by a flood. You know, a lot of rain, mudslide where it uncovers it. And there are stories. I mean, it is a fact. Yeah, there's a lot of money buried around Medellin. You've been there. And I know you've heard that. And we've interviewed people who found money. And it's all by mistake. One farmer, was the he was milking cows next to a river. And he started seeing bags floating down. So he started grabbing. And he grabbed about two or three. I think it was like four or five hundred thousand. And he told us, he said, hey, there's still a lot of money, a lot of bags going down the river. We asked him, why didn't you go get them? He says, I had to go back to finish milking the cows. That's why. (laughs) So we let him keep the money. So, but yeah, it is a fact. A lot of, still a lot of money buried. And you know what? After public skill, cat cartel, traffickers stole a lot of the money, other people. So it was, you know. There's always that, do we believe he left money for his family? I think he did. You know, I think he left, do not know, but yes, there is a lot of money buried in Colombia right now. 
Yeah, that's wild. Hey, what was the biggest learning point? I want to ask both of you, like looking back, reflecting back on your careers and obviously this particular moment, obviously, what was the one thing you really learned? Like what was the biggest takeaway you guys learned out of all of this for yourselves, like personally, physically, emotionally? As for me, what I learned is, you know what? Pablo Escobar got taken down, all of the organization, and what happened? Cali Cartel took over the drug distribution. The point is, you know what, and like you said, the innocent people that got killed for what, you know, just so Pablo Escobar could make a point, so Pablo Escobar could negotiate his surrender. That was the whole deal. All these innocent people that were at the wrong place at the wrong time, killed by Pablo Escobar, it was just basically so... Pablo Escobar would be able to negotiate his surrender. That's all that was. So the biggest point is, and I was questioned, you know, why Pablo Escobar? You know, what did all the citizen people have to do? That's why we always say Pablo Escobar is and was no Robin Hood. Mm -hmm. Stone cold, blooded killer. For me, there were a few different points. One is you truly learn the importance of never giving up on your mission, you know, following it through, even when you're, it's not, personally rewarding, or it's not even helping you along in your personal situation, you still got to get out there and do your job. The other thing is, <laughs> you know, I was a cop for almost 12 years before I joined DEA and I had seen murders and suicides and, you know, horrific beatings and things like that, but I'd never seen a level of violence like this. And it just, it really opened your eyes as to man's inhumanity to each other, you know, to how violent certain people can be to others and have no remorse, no guilt feelings whatsoever. And then another thing is, you know, make the best of a situation. My wife and I, we've been married now 38 years, Connie, we adopted two little girls down there who are now, you know, they were babies when we got them and they're now in their late twenties, you know, just changed our lives for the rest of our lives. If that makes sense, mm, <laughs> changed so. our lives, I guess would be the way to say it. But, you know, you make friendships like how I many I've been partners since 1991. Narco shows us arguing, shoving each other, throwing fists. Yeah. We've never yeah. even had a real disagreement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and one thing we like to point out is, you know, when you watch the narco show before either of our characters can say anything, we light a cigarette. Neither one of us <laughs> even smoked in real life. <laughs> <laughs> How good's that? That's Hollywood for you. Hey, yeah. good well, good you know what we learned? Drink what it. we learned? What we learned, Sam, is that Hollywood does not let the truth get in the way of a good story. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> when the show came out, guys were calling me, boss, how did you ever get promoted doing all that shit you did in Columbia? <laughs> Smoking and drinking and messing with all yeah. those girls? Yeah. It looked like a good time down there, man. <laughs> right, exactly. That's my number one question that I have all those affairs, you know. But, you know, and I want to leave it with also the, the real heroes in all of this were the search block of the Colombian National Police led by Colonel Hugo Martinez. They're the real heroes. And Steve and I always go out of our way to make this point. They're the ones who took their country back. You know, I don't know, Steve, but we were talking about you know, that's why we came up with a speaking business where we talked about Pablo Escobar and the actual truth of what happened. It's just a history. It's a, you know, history lesson. Yeah, it's really good to hear. And with all of this happening and the war on drugs and terrorism and whatnot, like I know you guys are retired, but you're speaking and you, you know, written books and, you know, you've put together these great shows on Netflix and being a part of all of that. And I want to touch on that before we finish this podcast. But what do you think is the cure to the end of drug trafficking? Is there? Do you believe that there is something that can be done? And that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? You know, so I wish that we could say we have a definitive answer and we don't. But we are huge proponents of education at the earliest possible age. You know, and I mean, before kids even get into elementary school, I have five granddaughters right now. I live in Florida and we're on a lake and there's a, about a six foot alligator that likes to come over and visit about once a week. And he'll just, he'll come along the shoreline there and just sun himself. And so our five-year-old granddaughter was here. She lives in Orlando also. She was here one day and I was showing her the alligator and there's quite a distance from our patio to the lake. So we're safe. It wasn't a danger zone really, but she's, you know, kids are innocent and they think they're not afraid of anything. And she's like, Mr. Alligator, I'm going to slap you on top of the head. If you come up here and, you know, just being a kid. And I got to thinking about it and it scared me. And I said, baby, come here. Let me talk to you a second. And, and I started telling her about the dangers of an alligator. And I said, you know, I will do everything in my, and 
possible to protect you as long as I'm alive. But if that alligator gets a hold of you, I don't think pops can save you. All my kids and grandkids call me pops. I said, I don't think I can save you. And by the time I finished, she was up in my arms, ready to go back in the house. Now, did I scare my granddaughter? Yep, I did. And she might even had a dream about it. But do you think she was going to go around an alligator again? And the whole point is we've got to get at the earliest possible age, let children, let everybody in the world know the dangers. Now, most people know already. They just don't care. I don't understand what, you know, what, honestly, I don't understand the attraction to illegal narcotics is. There's plenty of alternatives out there. I don't drink alcohol anymore, which that means Javier has to drink for two people now when we go out. <laughs> he steps up to the plate every time. I'm proud of yeah, it. Right? That, that <laughs> never failed that it. Boy. Never failed it. Yeah. It's just, you know, now, we, and he mentioned, Javier mentioned at the beginning here about fentanyl coming across the border from Mexico and the United States. And we're seeing so many counterfeit medications. And if we don't get any other word out is like he said, don't like if you and I were together, Sam, right now, and I had a headache and you offered me a Tylenol, I would turn you down. I will go get my own Tylenol. I like you. I trust you, but I'm not going to take a pill from you because of what's going on with fentanyl. And you think, well, Tylenol, that's harmless. Well, the drug traffickers are, they're making counterfeit Tylenol. They're making counterfeit Viagra. They're making counterfeit. Why are they putting fentanyl in it though? Isn't that like an automatic, you die off having a little bit of fentanyl? Why is it getting put in things? Well, it's so much more powerful than heroin. It's a hundred times more powerful than heroin. So you can imagine if you had to bring a hundred kilos of heroin in, now all you got to do is bring in one kilo of fentanyl. They have their own pill presses. So they're creating every pill that you can think of sending it not only to the United States, but other, primarily to the United States, because we're, you know, <laughs> we have the dubious distinction of being the largest consumer country in the world of illegal narcotics, not something we're real proud of. But, you know, DEA has some different programs and we're retired. We do not speak for DEA, even though we're retired agents, but we are proud of a lot of the work they're doing. They've got these programs now where they take a community approach to the drug trafficking problem in their communities. They used to have Operation, I think it was Operation 360, and then they had Operation Engage, and now they've got they've got a like a project that they're putting out. It's called One Pill Can Kill, and I mean, Javier and I, we've spoken to so many families that that's happened to that. You know, there was a girl that we know her sisters was a manager of an outback steakhouse in South Florida. She was helping to unload a truck. She pulled something in her back, and a young girl in her you know mid to late twenties. One of her friends, one of her coworkers, said, "Hey, I got this muscle relaxer. Take it. It'll ease the pain off your back." Well, it turned out to be counterfeit. She took the pill, passed out, and never woke up. And there's just story after story, just heartbreaking stories that are going on out there. So Javier and I have been on Capitol Hill twice talking to the Senate and the House of Representatives. We've met with the American Legislative Exchange Conference and spoken to all the attendees. And that's where you have representatives from every state in the United States trying to, and we're doing this in conjunction with Partnership for Safe Medicines, trying to get the word out about counterfeit medication. So you know, hopefully maybe some listeners that are listening to your podcast aren't aware of that, man. Just check it out. Go to our website. You know, Sam can tell you how to get a hold of us, but don't take anything that you don't know where it came from. Don't trust anybody. I mean, your friend's not looking to kill you. It's just he didn't know either. And these are not overdose deaths. They're poisonings in which if you stop and think about it, a perfect crime has just been committed. The perfect murder has been committed. Wow. Terrific. Yeah, see this. A lot of uneducated people, and I, and I love what you said there around starting early, starting the education really early, you know, when even elementary school or even earlier, you know, where people are aware about this sort of stuff because I feel like education is definitely the key to making a difference. And, yeah, guys, you guys nailed it. And I'm so grateful for your time and for all the work that you do even today. How can people follow you and support your journey? I'll make sure that I put it in the show notes. And I'll share this as far and wide as possible. How can people follow you, buy your book, visit your website, follow you on social media? Great. And thank you, Sam, for doing this. Just check us out at deanarcos.com. Deanarcos.com. That's our website. We've got a little shop on there. You can get autographed and personalized copies of our book, Manhunters, How We Took Down Pablo Escobar. Right now, we still have some other hats, t-shirts, stuff like that on there. We're phasing that out slowly, but it's not going to be around much longer. 
we started a weekly true crime podcast. It's called Game of Crimes. So you can I go. I like that a lot. I like it. It's kind of cool, I like, isn't it? I like the branding of it. Yeah. Game we, of Thrones. Well, a friend of ours in New Zealand created that throne for us. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, nice. So it's doing phenomenally well. We have a guest on every show, mostly good guys, but we've had a few former bad guys on there. Where else? On social media, just look up for us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. I'm probably missing something. We're every, all of those were at DEA Narcos. It's that simple. And where can people buy your book? Directly on your website or on Amazon as well? They can get it on Amazon, but if you want it autographed and personalized, our website's the only place you can get that. And, and we'll tell you up front, it's cheaper on Amazon, you know, because heck, Amazon buys it cheaper than we can get it. And we're the authors. I know, man. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But just come and check us out. There's an active calendar on there. It shows when and where we'll be in the world. And just to be transparent, Almost all of our presentations right now are corporate events or private events. We're still waiting for the world to open up to get the public, the theaters and the performing arts centers going again, but they're coming. Yeah, yeah, mate. That's great. Yeah, because I noticed you guys do some public speaking all around the world. You said you're in Australia earlier. Mm-hmm. You've been there a couple of times. So keynote speakers as well. Both of you guys co-deliver those programs. Is that right? Absolutely. We try to do everything together. That's what partners do. The duet. duet. Yeah. And the book is the real story. It's the real history. It's not made up. And it's from Steve and I being there. So we tell the truth. So, yeah. And that's what it's all about. You know, you hear stories all the time, but speaking from the truth. And you guys lived it, breathed it, and experienced it firsthand. So, no better place than to get the book and support the great work these guys do. But, mate, without further ado, Javier, Steve, thanks so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for everything. Can't wait for this one to go live. The public are going to absolutely love it. And yeah, stay in touch. Keep doing the great work you do and big love. Thank Thank you, Sam. Hope to meet you in in person someday. Me too. Thank you, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, buddy. Take it easy. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening in to another episode of It Ain't Week to Speak. Please subscribe to the show and help us climb the charts so that we can attract new listeners and change more lives. If you found something very useful in this episode, please share and spread the love to as many people as you can. Don't forget to leave a review or a comment so that we can grow this community together because a conversation can save a life. If you want to continue this chat, please join me on the podcast Facebook group at living.org. I can't wait to share the next episode with you. But in the meantime, we're going to the top. And remember, it ain't weak to speak. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.